Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. With me, Ellie Mistal. What's up? You know, not much. Uh, Happy birthday, America. Yes. Well, we this this episode is obviously a bit separated from that. But uh, yes, the 4th of July did happen last week. Um, I read a great article. I forget where, which is bad interneting by me. But there was a I'm sure if you Google it, it's a great article about how the 4th of July was like super celebrated by African-Americans after the end of slavery. They really adopted it as a super important holiday until the South was like, mm, we can't have you Negroes gathering and just killed those celebrations. And now, in the great words of Frederick Douglass, what the f- does the 4th of July mean to a slave, man? It, it, it's yeah. This holiday is not, not their best one for me. But that's not what I'm pissed off about. I'm not pissed off about the history of slavery and oppression of this country right okay. now. I'm pissed off about the fact that we don't have more oppression on one particular issue. Mm. Why the hell are fireworks legal anywhere? Oh, you why? Know- I mean, I mean, I I get oh, freedom. Woo! I should be able to blow my own hand off. Woo! It's ridiculous, and I really didn't get it. Like, I have people. My peoples are in Indiana, which has yeah. some of the most lax fireworks laws on earth. I mean, you can buy. You can buy anything out there and set it off in your goddamn garage and, you know, have progressive come when you burn your house down. New Jersey has a full ban, and that's probably because, you know, New Jersey people. New York doesn't have a full ban, which I didn't really realize Mm -hmm. until I moved out to the suburbs, because obviously the controls in the city are much more are much tighter. But uh, in the suburbs, in certain counties, you can buy. Yeah certain kinds of fireworks so we're out we don't go we don't take the kids to the because it's the traffic and the people and who needs it from where we sit we can on our I mean, balcony the wonder but, you know okay. we you can see fireworks right you can see what they're doing really the the fireworks that they throw off um on the long island sound we can kind of see from okay. our house so it's fine and they're fine they don't care but then our neighbors two houses down they start shooting off fireworks. And I'm like, what in the crap is this? How in the hell is that legal? Because, like, I don't know. They could shoot off the firework and it could land on my house and burn my house down. And I'm the one being responsible. Like, not to be all, like, a white woman, but, like, I thought about calling the cops. Mm. I didn't because I'm not a white woman. Right. But, like, I thought about calling the cops on my neighbors who were shooting off what I believed to be illegal fireworks. Yeah. Okay. What I learned this year is there are, there are some stages that people go through. There's the stage in your early 20s where you start going to a lot of weddings, and it's just like that's your time of life where you go to a lot of weddings. What I learned this year for the first time through Facebook was that I've reached a stage in my life where a bunch of people I know have an irrational hatred of fireworks. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't just you. It was tons of people being like, I have a dog, so people shouldn't be allowed to have fun. And I was like, I, I don't understand how I got to this point where a bunch of people hate fireworks. But no, uh, I have no problem with them. They're awesome. I did not buy a bunch of exploding things, but, you know. That's because you grew up in, like, Oregon or Botswana or wherever the hell. Some place where, like, there's not a lot to burn down. 
I mean, uh, that, that that's literally that range stupid Bundy Ranger group thing was that they tried to burn down a anyway. <laughs> point is, in Oregon, but whatever. Um, yeah, no, it's I don't understand where it came from. I'd never in my life seen a people in my Facebook feed go nuts about how much they hated fireworks, but it, it was this year. This is the year I became old enough that I know a bunch of people who hate fireworks. I, good to know. That magic number appears to be 27. <laughs> anyway, so you know what? If you want to, how do we do this? Okay. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just seeing if you even remember uh, remember the script that I've read so many times. He doesn't, but I do. Are you a lawyer looking for a new job to advance your career? Or are you out there looking to hire someone to grow your legal team? In either case, Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape. With more than 35 years of experience in legal recruiting, Major Lindsay helps law firms and legal departments thrive in today's ever-changing market and matches lawyers and legal professionals with opportunities where they can flourish. Learn more at www.mlaglobal.com. You get a new job, you can shoot off some fireworks. That's right. You can you can afford more fireworks. Well, Today, we're not talking about fireworks for much longer. We uh, are talking about things that explode. We are talking about things that explode. In particular, we're talking about law schools and not just any law schools. We have that ATL ranking U.S. News episode where we talk about the elite of the elite law schools. But today, we're going to talk about a subclass of law schools that are generally speaking at the very low end of the uh, totem pole reputation-wise. These are the for-profit law schools. So... We are going to talk about that because we have a guest today. We have uh, Dr. Riaz Tijani, who has a PhD in social anthropology from Princeton and as a JD from USC, where he was a fellow at the Center for Law, History, and Culture. But more importantly, he, for a while, was a teaching law at a law school that uh, he calls the New Delta Law School in his work uh, for anonymity reasons. But it's a for-profit law school that is surely at the summit of its reputation. He did some work while he was there studying the process and has written a book called Law Mart, Justice, Access, and For-Profit Law Schools. And he's going to talk to us about what's really going on with this subcategory of law schools. So welcome to the show, Dr. Tajani. Thank you so much. Good to be here. So yeah, we talk a lot about for-profit law schools here. They're a routine, Poorly. They're a routine punching bag at Above the Law's coverage. But you went inside. It was kind of a guerrilla anthropology where you uh, kind of, or gonzo anthropology, I guess, maybe is the, the right way of putting it. But you you immersed yourself in it and learned what was going on. Like, what was, what made you think about going this route? Yeah, I love the way you described it, gonzo. Um, and that's a big influence that, that, you know, I'm definitely walking the line between anthro and gonzo journalism. But what brought me there, I mean, essentially suspending disbelief and uh, keeping, you know, wanting to sort of see it for myself, what this was all about. And you have to remember that in, in the years when this, those got off the ground, there was some promise of a, of a new model, of a uh, increased diversity model, and um, the schools were actually doing kind of well in terms of their outcomes. We find out later that the decks were pretty well stacked for them to do that um, in terms of, you know, faculty-student ratio. But in, initially, it's keeping an open mind. And one of the things we learn in, you know, if, as you're doing training to become a social anthropologist is to um, suspend disbelief um, and go towards the margins, basically, and try to sort of seek out and shine light in the, in the darker corners. So this was a very dark corner, and uh, I saw no, you know, no harm in at least uh, exploring it. Of course, the situation changed quickly in terms of what was going on in the economy, what was going on in legal services really quickly changed within about a year of me getting there. And um, I was just glad to be able to document it. So when the bottom fell out, 
I think you you, you bring up a, an important point. In the beginning, they had the student-teacher ratio necessary to skill up, to train people who maybe came in with, with not the best preparation, with not the best test scores, to really kind of train them up to the point where they could eventually pass a state bar exam. When the bottom fell out, what changed? Well, the problem is that the you know, two things were happening at the same time. One is that because they're financialized in the way that they were, they were trying to grow at an explosive rate, uh, to use your word, explosive. And, and then, but at the same time, you know, the economy is doing what it's doing. So you have about 2011, let's say, where the incoming class size is now five times what it was just maybe two, three years earlier. And, you know, demand, you know, the, the applicant pool was, was quite large at that time. So actually LSAT scores had jumped up a little bit. But immediately there was, you know, fewer jobs out there. There was panic in terms of the next couple years of admission cycles. You have top tier law schools poaching off transfer students who have performed well. And so that's what changed is, is sort of on the one hand, they, um, you know, take out more risk. They, they move to larger buildings and invest in a little bit of infrastructure, even though it's minimum compared to other education contexts. But meanwhile, they're not able to sort of secure themselves over the next couple of years. And that's really what causes the pinch, I think, that you see in some of the behavior in my book. So here's the question. Having been there, what do you think about the quality of student, the caliber of student? Because one of the consistent criticisms that we, I'm going to ask you about two criticisms, but this is the first one. One of the consistent criticisms that we get when we write about law schools is from students who say, just because I had a bad outside score doesn't mean that I'm going to be a bad lawyer. You can't know what my potential is just based on my test scores and my GPA and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, to which I generally say, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if you have a bad outside score, that tells me something about how good you are at taking tests. And at the end of the day, you have to take a pretty big one to be a lawyer. What is your thought on the, the caliber and the quality of student that these schools are admitting? Yeah, I think, no, that's a really good one. Um, I would just use the phrase highly variable. I mean, the years that I was engaged with them, you had students skimmed off the top transferring to, as I said, uh, what are now top 30 law schools pretty handily and performing actually well at those. I taught some of those students and they were excellent. And then you have, you know, the others. So you have this bimodal distribution in terms of skill level and preparation. But as far as the, you know, predictive quality of LSAT and all that stuff, I agree with you. I think it's not determinative, but it's definitely not irrelevant. And so the question is, what are you plugging in to those students in the meantime? You, you take them in, what kind of support and uh, additional training are they getting in the interim before they face that big final test at the end? What you have at some of these schools, you guys referenced Arizona Summit, and I just, you know, ha oh, happened to know about... <laughs> Oh, did yeah, I? Yeah, you yeah, you did. And, uh, <laughs> and no, this is common knowledge. This is not nothing okay. secret. They famously changed, uh, I mean, my book is about New Delta, but it's public knowledge that Arizona Summit changed its curriculum drastically to sort of cope with all the conditions we're talking about. When they did that, you know, the criticism on the ground, I mean, amongst their own professors was, this is going to screw up bar results. These courses no longer correspond to bar-tested subjects. So instead of boosting, you know, the support for facing that test after you know, three years hence, they actually did things to undermine the students who are already coming in somewhat precarious facing that. This is a point that I know we have a lot of students that listen sometimes, a lot of pre-law students that listen. This is one of the big differences, I think, between your kind of middle tier to lower tier to bottom tier school versus the elite school. Kind of the further down you go on that elite scale, however you want to define it, the more the curriculum needs to be 
tailored to bar tested subjects because the more worried they are about you actually being able to pass the bar. On the higher end, as you go up towards, you know, top state schools and then top private schools and then... I mean, Yale's just teaching you poetry. I mean, they're not even bothering with (laughs) bar-tested subjects, right? They're trusting you, the kind of Yale student, the Harvard student, the Stanford student. They figure that you're going to be able to study for the bar in six weeks. Right. And, you know, having gone through the process... It's a stressful six weeks, but but you can't like if you have this a certain kind of like preparation and training and whatever, you can cram the bar in six weeks. And that's what Harvard makes you do. It doesn't spend three years teaching you about the bar exam. It doesn't really care about that. Down on the other end of the scale, once you get towards and I'm not gonna, you know, State University of Northwestern Vermont, that's when they really need to hammer in those bar tested subjects. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the question is, what do faculty uh, want to do? What are they up for? And, you know, how bored are they of themselves and, and so forth? But um, if you're truly committed to, you know, a, a law school model that's aimed at the at-risk students, then you're, you know, committing yourself to preparing them for that exam. And, you know, you got to be willing to do that. At the schools I observed, the faculty actually were very much willing to do that. That's the sad part is that no one had pretensions of teaching, you know, poetry and the law they actually were happy to be teaching CivPro 1 and 2, Torts 1 and 2, basically doubling up what you would get at a top 20 law school on any of the bar-tested subjects. It was decision makers elsewhere, sometimes off-site, kind of mandating that they shake up the curriculum. Why? Because there's some investors somewhere that need to be uh, comforted. Jesus. Yeah. Well, now, one of the criticisms, so many times when we write about this and we make fun of these, uh, not make fun of, just say that these schools are a problem and are underserving their students. One criticism that always comes back from the schools themselves and their supporters is, well, you hate diversity for criticizing us. You know, we're the we're the people out there who are bringing in minority students in large numbers that the other law schools aren't. And we're here actually helping diversity. We have taken the stance at our website that that's a noble cause that they are exploiting and they are pretending to care when they're really just taking money from these kids and leaving them in the lurch. But you've actually done the like we just pop off about that. But you have done the actual work witnessing all this and your conclusion seems to be largely the same. Identical, identical. And what, what my book is actually doing is going sort of deep into it to say, well, if that's the case, if you're, if you're instrumentalizing diversity to kind of paper over a financial, you know, model, uh, you know, a dubious financial model, what does it take to get people to buy into that? What does it take to get people coming in day after day, contributing to that, you know? And so my work, if it's you know, among other things that it's doing is sort of pulling back the curtain and saying like, well, Hey, faculty, how did you feel about the work you were doing? Did you feel like you were preying upon something or did you feel like you were serving a cause? And as you can see, and it kind of, the book kind of tracks the evolution in thinking. People talk about, well, in the beginning, this was a great opportunity. We were doing something kind of radical. And by the end of it, it's like, you know, I feel bamboozled. The scary thing is that that's sometimes the same narrative, the same story you see unfolding with like cults, you know, like, you know, Jonestown was a highly diverse church, you know, in the Bay Area before and they got pushed out. And there's a sort of this um, utopian ideal that starts and then, you know, goes goes awry. That's kind of a big jump in terms of the analogy, but it's actually some some of the same behavior. You know, one line from a article that you wrote, which really resonated with me that kind of hits at this 
this disingenuousness for a cause. A line in this article was, in this way, diversity became one of the school's strongest assets. The very groups most in need of regulatory protection became the means by which executives could argue for increased marketization. Basically, they utilized the idea of diversity as a way in which they could strip away more and more regulatory protection. And in this case, the regulatory protection, in theory, would be coming from the ABA, who is the entity who's supposed to be policing this accreditation, which for years they didn't, they've started to, and that's not going well. Right. The segue into my next question, actually, was what do you think, having been there, what do you think the ABA needs to do to ameliorate the problem that these schools present? Yeah, that's always the, the question. I mean, the first disclaimer I say is that, you know, I'm trained as a researcher, descriptive sort of analysis of what's going on and less so as a policy, you know, sort of expert wonk to, to come in with solutions. At least you're trained at something. I, I'm trained at Fortnite. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like one has to think about, one has to engage this question. So like at the most basic level, they have to be doing their job uh, as, you know, they're fulfilling their mission, which is to enforce those standards the way they're written. I think there's a very telling little anecdote that I mentioned in that article you have where after a site visit from uh, the accreditation team back in, let's say, 2012-13, at the school I observed, you know, the team leaves and then there's a meeting held and uh, administrators basically tell their faculty, all right, guys, I know everyone's a little bit nervous, but don't worry. We've been assured by back-channel communications that their approach will be let the market decide. And to me, that's so telling is, you know, the regulatory body has sort of imbibed that logic of the market should just decide this anyway. So sitting on their hands a bit, you know, showing faith in forces that don't deserve our trust has been the problem. And so what they're doing in the last couple of months, the last year, cracking down is exactly what was needed. It, of course, remains to be seen how this, the litigation is going to play out now. But um, I think it's you know, a start on the right foot. The scary observation that those of us following those litigations are noticing is that the ABA finally is starting to do this crackdown that we needed and is now running into the problem with allowing a market player to make a bunch of money for a long time. Right. The schools are hiring Paul Clement and fighting back, and the ABA doesn't, we started getting hints that maybe the ABA doesn't have the financial wherewithal to engage in that fight. And exactly. then just this week, we have access now publicly to a, what was an internal ABA memo saying that they believe the trend line is that they will be financially unviable within the next few years, unless something massive changes, right. suggesting, oh my God, our regulator of this may well be out of business. Soon. Yeah. It just underscores the point that timing matters. Timing matters in these things. You don't just come in at the 11th hour to do a job like that. All the harm that was generated in the interim, not to mention the shift in the political climate where, as we all know, you know, the Department of Education, for-profits, the whole climate has shifted. Exactly. And, and that's why I think ultimately, and as you point out, it's not going to happen anytime soon, but ultimately this has to come from the Department of Education. Right. The ABA is not strong enough and financially strong enough. I don't think it has the will necessarily to do this work. Eventually, it's going to have to come from the Department of Education. And I think Arne Duncan is a, a wait. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't work there anymore. Um, I think Blackwater Sister is obviously going to let, you know, DeVos is going to let this run for as long as they're in power. But the next person, I think that, you know, if Democrats are back in power, if progressives are ever back in power, progressives tend to overlook the Department of Education posting and secretary. And to the extent that they think about it, they think about it in very kind of like, 
What's gonna be good for my super awesome kids in Westchester? What kind of public schooling am I gonna get for What's little- What's this cool charter school gonna do? This yeah. cool infalaw run charter school, yeah. That's how progressives usually think about the post. Instead, the next time, they need to think about it in directly in terms of higher education for profit education because we i mean we're talking about this in the, in the context of law schools and they're in there i think the for-profit law schools are some of the worst offenders but let's not forget the entire industry of for-profit colleges which are kind of just as bad and preying on the exact same people that's what i'm saying you need an overall regulatory approach the aba alone can't do anything and not only that, but when you have ABA approval on these running for five, eight years at a time, that's a seal of approval. That's not just like, you know, hands-off approach. The ABA has accredited them. So if you're, you know, an, a novice pre-1L applying for school, you think, oh, great, ABA accredited. It must be okay, right? You know, and one, back to the, the discussion of how they've been, they kind of draped themselves in the diversity argument to do the damage. There's some law schools that are also at the generally in the lower tier that we criticize that I when I get pushback from students from there, I, I feel I feel their argument a little bit. And that's kind of some of these HBCUs who have, you know, traditionally served minority communities, and they often are towards the bottom of these two. And I've always, you know, had a little bit of tinge that maybe they're a different model. But one thing that showed up uh, that I noticed in your work is there's some HBCUs that aren't immune to the predation logic. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, it's survival at you know at this point after after the downturn, it's been survival for so many of these institutions. But I agree with you. I think it's fair to make a distinction there between for profit or not for profit or uh, financialized or not financialized in that way because. Even if it's simply, well, it's more than just a symbolic distinction, but even that alone is important. I mean, what are we saying when we let this thing run on to both sides of a fence? And on, and on one side, it's at least uh, with some sort of charitable mission statement alone. And on the other side, you know perfectly well this is going to a private equity group. I think it does, you know, it's, it's fair to make the distinction, but both have to be dealt with. I guess it's a matter of sort of starting with the worst offender. And to some extent, they're coming together, going back to the summit oh, right. discussion. Yeah, there's, they signed a deal with an HPC. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and this is back to, you know, this, all the, my work and a lot of what you guys are saying is actually, this is social philosopher Nancy Frazier, who had some really good work a couple years back on the, you know, she describes how we've gotten to where we are and basically argues that after the 60s, the sort of idealist social justice mindset was sort of taken over or co-opted by the words neoliberalism, but you don't need that word. It's just this sort of like laissez-faire kind of economics, marketization, market faith, and that somehow social justice and markets got deeply tied together and the idea of a strong regulator got pushed aside. And so when you see HBCUs partnering up with a law school owned by a private equity firm, you're seeing exactly that. Now there's suddenly faith in this kind of entrepreneurial social justice rather than some kind of previous version of it, which would have been more regulated. And to be clear, like, I'm not a person who's against markets in all cases. I'm not a communist. I'm probably a socialist, but I'm not a communist, I don't think. But the pushback that I always try to give to the free market laissez-faire capitalists in my life, of which there are a few, is that markets only work when you have transparency. Right. And one of the keys of the for-profit sale is to not have the kind of transparency that people need to make an informed decision, right? I talk to lots of students, especially younger African-American students who are trying to pick their way through. 
how to get into law school. It's particularly difficult, I think, for African-Americans and for Latinos who often are not just the first people in their family going to law school. I mean, that's almost obvious, right? A lot of times they're the first people in their family going to college. A lot of times they don't have any other lawyers in their life, right? They became interested in the law because some lawyer did something to their family, not because some lawyer was a mentor to them in their upbringing. So they really have no idea of what the operative difference is between Harvard and Yale. They don't have a clue what the operative difference is between Tennessee and Vanderbilt and Emory and Charlotte School of Law. Yeah. And that's where I, where I say the transparency is so important. If you give them the information, they are more than capable of making an intelligent choice for them. And as you point out, doctor, there are students who can go to these schools and succeed. But at least in my experience, those students are the ones who know what they're getting into at the highest level. Right. And it's, it's two levels of that kind of information asymmetry. There's what is the school going to give me? You know, what are they actually doing there? And the other one, you know, we don't talk about that much is in many of the minority communities, there's a larger just general faith in the law and injustice and in, you know, the gains that have been made over the, the decades now being undone to some extent. But, you know, this is this dual sort of asymmetry, whereas, you know, I think, yeah, the savvier incoming students tend to have, for all these reasons, you're describing more of that information. And so I agree with you. I think that there's a pretty good economic sociologist out of Princeton, Viviana Zelizer, and she talks about uh, what she calls a multiple markets perspective, saying basically, you do want to have free-flowing markets in some sectors, and you want to have very tight protection in others. And the distinction tends to be around, you know, public versus private goods. Well, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us and discussing. Can't wait for the hate mail. Yeah, and well, we'll get some. But I, I generally think people get this. But yeah, no, thank you so much. Thanks for doing all this work. Like actually, like Seriously. more so than us just kind of saying this, like somebody who actually can go in and talk about the details of it. And that's in the book, Law Mart, Justice, Access, and For-Profit Law Schools. Thanks again for joining us, Dr. Tijani. Thank you both, guys. For everybody else, thanks for listening. You should subscribe. You should review it. You should write a review. Give it stars. Tell your friends. Go over to your Especially neighbor. Especially if they're thinking about going to law school. Go to your neighbor who you've never met. Tell them that that's what they need to be doing is listening to Thinking Like a Lawyer. All of those things. Read Above the Law, as always. Follow us on Twitter. He's at L-E-N-Y-C. I'm at Joseph Patrice. Listen to other Legal Talk Network shows. Thanks to MLA for sponsoring this episode. And uh, that is everything I've got. We'll talk to you soon. Have a nice one. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.